many of you guys probably already know this, but uh, my name is Isaac Young. I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I'm an intern here with Chi Alpha. Um, my, my hometown is originally Centralia, Washington, which is a small, tiny little town south of Seattle, about an hour. Um, I'm also the oldest of four brothers. If you look behind me, this is my family. So, like, you got, so you got Ezra on the far right, and then over there in the middle is David, and then on the left, like, is Luke. Um, yeah, we're a pretty ridiculous bunch, and that just kind of comes from you grow up together, and you're all homeschooled, you know, stuff happens. But, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, and my mom actually homeschooled all of us, and uh, my dad, there on the far left, is um, a middle school health and PE teacher and also a coach. They're pretty awesome. I love my family a lot. And um, it was definitely hard to actually leave at first when I first was coming to school. But my time here has been really awesome. Learned and grown a ton in my, in my time here. Which actually kind of leads to a really fun story about uh, my time here as a student. Uh, let me ask you a question real quick. How many of you have ever had to cram for a deadline? Yeah, yeah, I, I know I sure did. Um, when I was a student here, I studied graphic design. And uh, at one point, there was this one, um, there was one, this one project I had to complete. complete. And we had deadlines to reach certain progress points in the project. And um, at this point, I knew I had to create a rough draft of this project by like a certain Wednesday. But I was feeling pretty good about it. It was, it was Sunday, and so I was like, I got plenty of time. Unfortunately, that Sunday, I was in for a pretty rude awakening. Because um, when I got back to my residence hall and back to my dorm room, um, I found out the assignment wasn't due on Wednesday, but Monday. <laughs> yeah, that, um, that relaxed Sunday turned into pure panic mode real quick. <laughs> yeah, it spurred me into probably what was the, one of the most intense cram sessions of my entire life. I went from just a, having a concept of what I wanted in my head to a fully designed and printed out rough draft in about 11 straight hours. <laughs> yeah, I, I still remember that night. I, um, I didn't want to wake my roommate, so I actually, in the middle of the night, I, was, I had put a pillow over my printer while I was printing out the parts of my project, hoping that it wasn't going to wake him up. <laughs> Yeah, I was really, really glad that my roommate had grace for me because, yeah, that was, a, that was not a fun time. But you see, that deadline it came, came up on me like a thief in the night. I moved from relaxing to taking this assignment really seriously. And um, one of the things I think Jesus wants to ta- tell us tonight is that he wants us to take his return to earth seriously. Last week, if you remember, um, we went over 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we ended up talking a lot about the return of Jesus. We have hope in the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead, and because of that, we know in the end we will rise as well. But what are we to do with this information? More specifically, how should we live in light of Christ's return? That is what we are asking ourselves tonight. 
So will you guys bow your heads and join me in prayer as we dive in? Lord God, um, thank you for this night. Thank you that uh, we get to just go through your word here tonight, Lord God. And um, I pray that you would just open up all of our ears and our hearts to hear what it is that you wish to say to us. Just be with us as we go through tonight. I ask this in your name. Amen. So now, um, if you guys will all turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to be reading through verses 1 through 11. So let me know when you guys are there. Cool. All right, let's dive in. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now actually, we're going to pause right there and let's take a moment and think about what we just read here. Why is he going over something that he seems to know that Thessalonians already know about? Remember how earlier in this quarter, Brandon had read Acts 17 about the story of Paul first starting the church in Thessalonica? This would have been when Paul not only shared the gospel with them, but taught them the fundamentals of their faith. One of the things that he would have taught them is this idea of the day of the Lord, the day when Christ would come back and punish all that who do wrong. But where did Paul get this? What scripture would Paul have known and used to teach on this? One clear text that he would have taught out of would have been Isaiah two, chapter 2, 17 through 19. It, uh, it describes the day of the Lord this way. The arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day and the idols will totally disappear. People will flee to caves in the rocks and to holes in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. So is the day of the Lord a lighthearted matter? The Lord of all the earth is coming in judgment. Humans are brought low. People run in fear. And we have to ask ourselves a question. What is God angry about? What is he coming to judge? What is he coming to set right? If we look at what Isaiah is describing, we see God judging against a number of things. We see God humbling humanity and destroying idols. And why, why does he do, do this? He does it to ensure that humans are freed from slavery to idols and to Satan. To ensure, to ensure that he alone is worshipped above all things. You see, the day of the Lord is about God establishing his reign and ridding the world of all that opposes it. You see, from God's perspective, there are only really two choices. Either we worship him or we worship something that takes his place, which is the definition of of what idolatry is. And idols come in many forms. 
For the Thessalonians, it was false gods. Think like Zeus or Poseidon or, you know, those, those kinds of things. But for us, it's any number of things that we give ourselves to besides God. I think we could come up with quite a list if we tried. Entertainment, sports, acceptance, hobbies, possessions, maybe even our favorite, favorite political parties. But, have you, but another thing, have you ever considered that we could make ourself an idol? When we place our good over God's good, even this is idolatry. If you're like me, oftentimes I've thought of Christianity as something that fixes my life and is centered around my life. However, that's not what the gospel's about. It's not about me, and it's not about you. It's about the Lord of all creation. He lovingly made us in his own image. He created us to worship him, to enjoy a relationship with him. And in the end, it's about whether or not we choose to worship him above all things. So we know God is coming to end our slavery to sin, Satan, self, and idols. He came to set things right. But how does it say the Lord will do this? In Joel chapter 2, verse 32, it's put this way. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. You see, setting the world right comes when we as humans call upon the Lord to save us from our idolatry. Things are made the way they are meant to be when humans become God worshipers, not man or creation worshipers. And in this, Joel tells us that all this has something to do with Mount Zion in Jerusalem and that it's on Mount Zion that we find deliverance. But what happened there? What happened in Jerusalem that could possibly bring about this kind of deliverance? You see, it was outside that city 2,000 years ago that Christ was crucified, bearing the punishment that we all deserve. It is through believing in Christ as our Savior and Lord that we become God worshipers and not idolaters. With that said, we have learned about the return of Christ. What things do we see need to be set right? There's too many broken things in this world to list. Do we long for the day where there's no more war, no more broken families or societies? No more gun violence. No more discrimination against women. We know that all of these horrible things will come to an end when Jesus comes back. So now that we've looked at what the day of the Lord is, we can see that it is a good thing. Christ's return brings about the kind of life that God intended for us to live on planet Earth. No more death. No more sorrow. This great and wonderful day of the Lord is coming.
So now we know what the Thessalonians knew about this event. But once again, why does Paul bring it up? What's interesting is he actually spends most of his time reminding the Thessalonians about the sudden and unknown nature of the day's arrival, that Christ's return is going to come upon this world like a thief in the night. Why does he emphasize so heavily that the world isn't going to see it coming? To answer this, once again, we have to think about who Paul was writing to. The Thessalonians lived near the heart of the Roman Empire. The era in which this was written was known as the Pax Romana, which is Latin for Roman peace. You see, at this time, Rome controlled most of the known world, and its armies kept its citizens safe. Because of this, the statement Pax Romana was a propaganda statement declaring the supremacy of Roman rule and its ability to enforce that rule. And for many, especially in the regions that were close to Rome, this era gave many a sense of peace and prosperity, which then turned into a lifestyle of uncaring, blissful selfishness. Doesn't this sound a lot like America? We, like the Thessalonians, are immersed in a culture that lulls us into spiritual slumber. Our lives as Americans are cushy. We don't, ha- we don't even really have to care about the evils and troubles of life. We have air-conditioned homes, plenty of food, and are ridiculously wealthy compared to most. And whenever worries do arise, we have countless forms of escape and entertainment to escape those worries. However, all it takes is one moment to jar us from our sleep. One event to realize the evil and injustice in this world. One death in the family. One mass shooting. Or one friend being sexually assaulted. When these things shake our world, we realize how terrible it is for us to live such ignorant lifestyles. And in the same way, this world is lost in numbness caused by its own rebellion against God and idolatry. Planet Earth, apart from Christ, is so unaware of the coming day of the Lord. And when Jesus comes back, all who were unaware will wish that they had known about their coming king. So now we find ourselves in the same place as the Thessalonians. We know that Jesus is coming back. So what does this mean that we should do? How should we live? That is the question that we're left with. And to answer that, we're actually going to pick up our text again so we're gonna, let's keep reading, moving on from verse 4 through 11. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, ch- children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep at night Those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. 
But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Can you see what Paul is trying to convey here? He is giving the Thessalonians a picture of how they should live. They are no longer in the dark. They know that their king is returning in glory and power to set all things right. Because of this, Paul calls them to live lives that look very different to their world. Like, night and day different, like light and darkness. And doesn't that make sense if you know that an earth-shaking event like Christ's return is coming? Think back to my story from earlier, from my cramming last minute to finish my project. I was totally in the dark as to how soon my deadline was. (laughs) I was about to have a pretty chill day, but the moment I realized how soon my project needed to be done, it immediately changed the way that I lived. On a much grander scale, the Thessalonians realized their need to live different lives in the light of Christ's return. And if they did, shouldn't we? So what are the characteristics of this different lifestyle? Paul actually lists several comparisons between the old and the new lifestyle. One of the first things we see Paul say is that God's children are called to be awake and sober. He contrasts sobriety with drunkenness. Now, as college students, I think we have a pretty good idea of what Paul's talking about. (laughs) Drunkenness is commonplace on campus just the way it was in Thessalonica. But why would God be against drunkenness? Is there a reason why God just doesn't want his people getting wasted? I don't know. It's because doing so changes our state of mind. It causes us to forget our cares. It lowers our barriers and frees us to act whimsically and often unwisely. In this state of mind, we're more likely to make bad choices, to sin against God and against others. God's word is clear that we must not dull our minds by getting drunk. Instead, we're called to have alert minds. Ephesians 5.18 tells us to be filled with the spirit instead of filled with alcohol. But we in the Thessalonians are called to be awake and alert. So what what other things can numb our minds? What other things keep us from being sober-minded, from being spirit-controlled? The answer is so much more than just alcohol. It can be anything that distracts us from God and his mission. Could it be the huge amount of time that we binge on Netflix? Could it be the countless hours that we sink into our games or our hobbies? Could it even be like a relationship with another human being? Our culture has developed a knack 
for creating things for us to give ourselves to. We fill our minds with everything but God. Doesn't this once again sound like idolatry? So what pastimes and activities cloud your brain? What passions do you have that demand your heart and usurp God's place as the recipient of your worship? And what things cloud your thinking and keep you from having a sense of expectancy and urgency regarding Christ's return? Moving on, the second thing that we see Paul urging the Thessalonians to do is to put on faith and hope and love as armor. Why might Paul ask the Thessalonians to do this? Why would he use the analogy of armor? Once again, when you think about the people he was talking to, the Thessalonians would have immediately thought of the armor worn by Roman soldiers, the world's mightiest military force. Back then, nobody messed with Rome's armies. Like, nobody. (laughs) And those who did, did not live very long. (laughs) Their training was top-notch. Their armor and equipment were second to none. These soldiers served their emperor's will all across the empire, and they conquered all who opposed Rome's rule. Doesn't that add a lot of weight to this command that Paul makes? Not just anyone walks around wearing armor. He is saying that we as Christ followers should think of ourselves as soldiers in service of the king of the universe. Think about what that might entail. This would raise the Thessalonians' view of themselves and their calling. The Thessalonians were soldiers of the creator of the universe. They had a sense of duty and loyalty to their king. This is also what Paul meant about being sober-minded. Good soldiers stay awake and alert. They don't dull their minds with anything that would hinder their abilities. Like we've learned throughout this quarter, the Thessalonians' mindset embraced the suffering and persecution that came their way, the same way that soldiers suffer in combat. It was part of their job description and Paul is calling them to continue in it. But do you know there's a spiritual battle still going on? We might not be in the same situation as our early church brothers and sisters, but we are opposed. 1 Peter 5.8 says that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He wants us wants to keep us from being effective soldiers and representatives of our king. And do you want to know what the devil's most effective strategy is? He makes us forget that he's even there. To live our lives totally unaware of that spiritual battle. And because of that, how many times do we let the enemy's lies wreck our identity in Christ? How often do we let secret sin and temptations distance us from our Father? These are all strategies of our enemy. And we are not called to go through life unarmored and unequipped to face them. Instead, like the Thessalonians, we are called to equip ourselves with the faith, 
hope and love that comes in the gospel. We are also followed the instructions of Ephesians 6 to put on the full armor of God. And when we are equipped with these things, we are able to resist the enemy's assaults. It is when we are equipped that we are able to be most effective in advancing the coming kingdom of God. So we can see from all this that the call of the alert Christian life is a high calling. But what motivation do we see for the Thessalonians to follow through? To answer that, Paul goes back to some of his previous statements. The third thing he encourages them to do is to remember the source of their hope. He reminds them of who they are waiting for. You see, God in his mercy had chosen to reveal himself to the Thessalonians, and they had received him. Because of that, they would not suffer the wrath that is coming. Where the day of the Lord means destruction for the enemies of God, for God's people, it means their ultimate salvation. They would be with their Savior forever. This hope in eternal life with their Savior was the source of joy. It gave them hope. It motivated them. Their coming king was worth every sacrifice that they would ever make in his name. And this begs us to ask ourselves some hard questions. How much do you value your king? Is Christ a treasure to you? Is he like the proverbial treasure found in a field that you are willing to give, trade, or suffer anything for? Our king invites him, invites us to make him our treasure. And if we will, we will find that he is truly worthy. And in the end, we will enjoy eternity with him. So in conclusion, what have we learned from this passage? We have learned that there is a great cosmic regime change coming. (laughs) Jesus Christ will return to bring judgment on his enemies, establish his rule, and be with his people forever. In light of this, we are urged to not let ourselves be subject to the vices or forces that would lull us into spiritual sleep. Instead, we are called to be alert. We are called to arm ourselves with faith, hope, and love. And we are called to remember the joy that we have in Christ's return. So with that said, I'd actually like uh, the the worship team, you guys can start coming back up as we start transitioning into a time of response. Um, During this next time, though, I'd like to actually offer a few questions for you to ponder through as we enter into worship. First of all, will you choose to align yourself with King Jesus? He is the ruler of all things and is going to establish his reign fully on earth. He is a king, but he is a loving king. We all have rebelled against his rule but he made a way for us to be reconciled to him 
through his death and resurrection, will you accept your need for him and join his people in actively serving the coming king? Also, how does God want you to live differently knowing that he is coming back? How is he calling to li- you to live in this new expectant lifestyle that we are all called to have? And lastly, what things in your life keep you from having an alert, sober mind? What idols is God calling you to lay down that keep you numb to what God is doing in the world? And is there something that he's calling you to give up to better focus yourself on him? Will you pray with me? Lord God, you are good and you are king and you are coming, Lord. We thank you for that. And I pray, Jesus, that you would just um, speak to every one of us, that you would draw us closer to yourself, and that you would give us eyes to see what you are doing in this world and hope in what in your coming reign, Lord. Speak to us on the things that you would have us change. Make us more like you.